Good morning. It's Thursday, the 29th of June, and I'm Govind Raj Athiraj in transit, still, and missing the rains and chaos of Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports today: Indian markets hit all-time highs again. Valuation concerns surface now. A tale of two boards. Corporate governance stories from around the country. India has major manufacturing plans. How prepared is our infrastructure to deliver to them? And hmm. the tcs or the tax credited at source was supposed to start on july 1st for international credit card spends among other things predictably banks are not ready this is a core report with govindraj athiraj The stock markets have hit all-time highs again. Obviously every upward move, however small or big, is an all-time high, but this time it's on the higher side. The Sensex went past the 64,000 mark to hit an all-time high of 64,050, eventually ending with a gain of 499 points at 63,915. Now the NAC Nifty 50 topped the 19,000 mark for the first time ever and registered its new peak at 19,011. The Nifty finally ended at eighteen thousand nine seventy-two. That's up one hundred and fifty-five points. Now the reasons are several, including strong global markets, notably Wall Street, along with strong foreign institutional investor buying. U.S. data, including for orders for manufactured goods, are suggesting a resilient U.S. economy. And a survey of consumer confidence has hit a seventeen-month high in the United States. Back home, apprehensions over the impact of delayed monsoons may have helped a little bit. I have always felt without of course any data to prove it that the monsoon is treated as arrived and doing fine by stock market players if it pours in Mumbai and that of course is happening now. Okay back to the markets Reliance Industries HTFC Bank and Infosys were among the big gainers. So while we've been seeing a spate of bullish reports using both past data like Goldman Sachs and future optimism like Morgan Stanley others are being a little careful. Stock brokerage CLSA, earlier known as Credit Leonese Securities Asia, has said that it remains cautious in India for now because of exceedingly rich valuations and margin erosion depleting India's relative profitability. It also says according to website BQ Prime, the other reasons are consensus earnings per share growth expectations remaining too optimistic versus the delivered track record and the Reserve Bank of India likely lagging emerging markets, central banks in the timing and scale of policy easing our econometric model signaling the market is 14% overbought credit leone said in general many bullish brokerages have been predicting a strong market basis high profit margins even though overall economic growth projections are moderate now this has been partly driven by falling raw material prices at least in the manufacturing sector a tale of two boards Some of you may have followed this report that software major Tata Consultancy Services or TCS was alerted about senior executives breaching a code of conduct to provide preferential treatment to some recruiters in the company's resource management group or hiring division. This was apparently triggered by a whistleblower complaint towards the end of April or May. By the way, TCS is India's largest private employer and employs 614,000 people or 0.6 million people across 150 nationalities. The Economic Times has now reported that TCS has written to its board of directors to say that, and I quote, 
While the investigation is still ongoing and the final report is still awaited, an initial reading suggests that subcontractors are a very small percentage of the overall workforce of TCS and the claims are ridiculously exaggerated. TCS had earlier said, on receipt of the complaint, the company launched a review to examine the allegations and based on this review, it found that it does not involve any fraud by or against the company and has no financial impact. It also said no key managerial person of the company has been found to be involved. The issue relates to breach of the company's code of conduct by certain employees and vendors providing contractors, it said. Now, there are a lot more details to this which are still not out, but it would be safe to say that we could wait for it because the net impact in terms of number of people does seem to be very minimal and perhaps no point getting into it right now because the point here is a little larger. Now, let's look at the TCS board of directors, which Apart from those either within the company or the Tata Group, include Dr. Pradeep Kumar Kosla, the Chancellor of the University of California, San Diego, and a distinguished professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, Han Birjet Sorensen, who has held several leadership positions in shipping and logistics giant Maersk, and Don Callahan, formerly head of operations at Citigroup. The other directors who are familiar names to people here are Kiki Mistri, CEO of HDFC, which will soon be HDFC Bank, and O.P. Bhatt, formerly the chairman of State Bank of India. Looking around at these names and the ones that I'm familiar with, and assuming that the letter to the directors is accurate, I can pretty much predict who exactly would have seen the first news report that appeared on this HR mess and resultant scandal and telephoned the TCS CEO or someone appropriately senior to provide an explanation in writing and on record to the board. To be fair, it is equally possible that TCS did the same thing proactively, anticipating precisely this call or worse, a formal letter from a board member asking for an explanation. Either way, information has been exchanged on what could be a not-so-serious matter, but with definitely serious implications, at least from a perception point of view, more so if it was allowed to escalate. Now, I could contrast this with many things, but the example of EdTech company Baiju's obviously comes to mind being fresh and all of that. Baiju's as a company is presently afloat with, as I can see, only the family left on its board. Three independent directors and investors who have likely invested over $5 billion between them or on behalf of others have abandoned the company by resigning, a most unusual move considering most investors with much less and smaller investments would have asked the founders to leave instead if matters had reached such a head. And then, of course, the auditor, Deloitte, has also resigned. There is a new auditor going by reports, but this is going to be one tough assignment. In general, directors only resign if there is a threat or likelihood of some kind of action by some law enforcement agency triggered in turn by some actions or missteps that were possibly preventable or should not have happened at all. They would also resign if they feel that in addition to being dragged into some unholy mess of an investigation, they have no hope of taking control or it's just not worth the time and effort. And prudence dictates that writing off the investment is better than, well, to put it somewhat dramatically, jail time. Now, TCS enjoys a what is known as a governance premium in the stock markets, as do many Tata companies, as do many other companies, including in information technology and MNCs. It is likely that such queries come in from active board members on various developments, good and bad in a year, to many if not most companies. Or companies proactively keep their directors informed if they encounter some such material development. All that is part of good and active governance. 
A bad development typically would lead to directors wanting to reassess the company they are keeping and whose board they are sitting on and not get embroiled in something unfortunate. Now, this is for both perception and legal reasons, as being on the board of a company involved in some malfeasance can get you into trouble even if you had to or claim to have no clue of what was going on. Things, of course, do go wrong and companies will try and bury something that should have either been revealed or shared much earlier than it eventually was. Now, it was possible that the TCS HR issue could have been bigger and more damaging. Maybe it still is, maybe not. But good governance would demand that it get to the bottom of it quickly and keep everyone informed, including shareholders and other stakeholders and, of course, directors. Does India have enough infrastructure for its ambitions? There is much discussion on semiconductor plants, as well as other new manufacturing projects on the anvil, some thanks to India's productivity-linked incentive schemes and some otherwise. Most industrial groups in India, like the Tatas, have announced major capital expenditure in the next year or so, and mostly running into thousands of crores of rupees. The broader and perhaps general question I posed is that with increased manufacturing activity, among other things, how is India's infrastructure set to cope with the increased demand for better and smoother logistics for raw materials coming in and goods going out within India as well as outside. I spoke with Vinayak Chatterjee, co-founder of Feedback Infra and a leading authority on infrastructure issues and challenges in India as well. I began by asking him how he was seeing our current position, particularly on the major infrastructure points like roads and ports. Now, if you take a look at the key elements of infrastructure today and core infrastructure, I don't think there is any manufacturer in India, current or potential, who is complaining about roads. In fact, the distance on road travel, the ease, the introduction of multi-axle trucks, the introduction of GST and reduction of border check posts, no, no entrepreneur, nobody is complaining about uh, roads. I can reassure you that roads is not a bottleneck or a concern area. If you next look at the next most important element, which is ports, to get the raw material in and to get the finished product out. I have recently done an article in Business Standard, which I would like you to access, called The Renaissance of Indian Ports. And very few people know that between standalone ports and berths and terminals within the major ports, India, since early 2000s, has actually seen 83 projects where private capital has come in, both domestic as well as international players like DP World and Port PSA, etc., etc. It is now well known that Indian ports have reached a certain very acceptable level of efficiency. One of the indicators they have is called ASTA, the average ship turnaround time. It's called ASTA. In the bad days, in the late 80s, it used to be about eight days. And all international freight forwarders and shippers used to say, how inefficient are your Indian ports? Today, that ASTA is down to two days. And in some cases, it is as good as 17 hours in some container ships. So ports, to my mind, is not an issue. What is really a bottleneck today is the interface between ports and inland movement, which is the interface and the time spent in processing the customs, the pre-birthing and post-birthing issues, container freight stations, the interface of railway with port, the interface of a road with port is congested, etc. There is an interface issue which still requires sorting out and I'll, I'll come back to that later. India doesn't have a great uh, constraint on air capacity for manufacturing because we really don't export too much. I mean, 
you know, it's not an economy that is kind of sending huge tonnage of fruits and vegetables and perishables or medicines by air. But having said it, Indian airports, as you and I know, have come of age. And many of them are ranked as, at least from a passenger point of view, as some of the best in terms of service provisions in the world. Over and above, the regional airport scheme targets about 200 new airports, as Minister Sindhya has recently announced, about 200 new airports in the next 5-6 years. So the penetration is high and therefore even some of the plants in the backward areas should face far less encumbrances in moving their people and their goods. So now you have rail and rail is moving at a fairly high pace in terms of upping its service standards for movement of goods. The introduction of the dedicated freight corridor west is soon going to be in operation. That will transform rail movement from northern India and western India to Mumbai ports. The eastern dedicated freight corridor is also nearing completion. And they have identified about five or seven other freight corridors like Chennai, Bangalore, etc. Et so rail is taking freight very, very seriously. And the National Rail Plan actually envisages recapture of cargo, which has come down from 28% to about 40%. So if you know if I now move to the services sector, I mean infrastructure services, there I already mentioned that it is the interface issues of multimodalism, of port road rail connect, which are today the problem areas. And therefore the government has taken two very major steps. One, as you know, is Gati Shakti. Gati Shakti is a massive software program. I think India is the only country that has it, that has 13 levels of data from stuff below the ground, like optic fiber cable, gas pipelines, etc., to stuff on the ground and above. And now I don't want to get into a major stuff on Gati Shakti, but just to say, Gati Shakti addresses the last mile connectivity problem, which I mentioned, is still waiting to be fully addressed. And finally, you are aware the government had launched months ago the NLP, the new logistics policy, which intends to bring down India's cost of logistics from 13% of GDP to about 8% of GDP. The national logistics policy has a very major software program embedded in its activities called ULIP, which is a unified logistics platform for freight forwarders and cargo movers to trace their cargo from point of origin to point of, shall we say, export or point of where they have to reach. Now, all these forces are coming together and therefore the fundamental answer to your opening question is that I do not think infrastructure is a bottleneck for potential investors in India or even existing manufacturers in India. Right. And I sense that you're saying the opposite. You're saying that we are well geared to actually absorb and accelerate. Okay. So last question. On the softer side, you talked about, let's say, the interface challenges. So part of it could be to do with regulation and laws. And the other part could be to do with technology or the better application of it. Between the two, what are you betting on? Well, I'm certainly betting on technology. Gati Shakti is one of the most fantastic IT platforms that integrates physicals. And I am told by freight forwarders that everybody is now lost, started to integrate, even private players who move freight and cargo have started linking their portals and their activities to the national logistics platform called ULIP, which is the unified logistics. So both of these are technical plays. I don't think there is a great issue on rules and regulations. I just feel that the interface issues were that in the past, India undertook many projects on a standalone isolated basis. We set up a port without worrying about its connectivity. We set up a hydropower plant in Northeast without thinking of when the transmission lines would be ready, even in Rajasthan, in interior Rajasthan. So earlier, the projects were set up on a rather individual basis 
without application of mind on cross connections and required connections because they were kind of mired in interministerial issues. But the combination of Gati Shakti and the NLP, I think, goes to the root of the problem and addresses them. Right. Uh, Vinayak, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this. The 20% tax on international spends is looming, but banks may not be ready. The government's presumptive tax on overseas credit spends could get delayed. The new 20% tax credited at source, which you would pay when you travel overseas and your spends exceed 7 lakh rupees a year, may get delayed beyond July 1st or may be applied partially, though how exactly it is not clear to me. India is likely the only country in the world that will tax its citizens and that too so steeply for the privilege of using their credit cards overseas apart from the other expenditure they could incur from here. Multiple news reports are quoting banks saying that they are not ready with the reporting systems for this 20% TCS. The challenge seems to be, among other things, the multiple TCS rates and this 7 lakh rupee exemption, which by the way was a result of pushback from angry citizens and of course international travellers. In any case, the government has not budged on mostly anything, as all outward remittances, including bank account transfers, foreign exchange, loading forex cards, except for medical and educational purposes, made via the liberalized remittance scheme, which does not appear so liberalized now, will attract a TCS of 20%. So just to refresh our memories, you will pay 20% in addition to or over everything you spend off your income that you have presumably already paid tax to the government will now allow you to net it off when you file your tax returns at the end of the year. It has already been pointed out, including on the core report, that many people, for example blue-collar workers who buy one-time foreign exchange before leaving the country for long work stays overseas, are most unlikely to return to claim a refund, and are more than likely to forfeit it given the runaround it could involve even if they return soon. It would also appear that not much or limited consultation has happened between the government and the banks on the technical feasibility of the first proposal or the challenges thrown up by the second revised one before the hastily announced exemptions. It also appears that the government may not have consulted anyone at all on this move because economists and finance watchers on both sides of the aisle have attacked it soundly for, among other things, bringing back the 70s feelings of controls. Of course, eventually banks will have no choice but to fix it and I'm quite sure they can. But it is also quite clear that there was an inexplicable rush behind this move. To what end and why July 1st is still not clear to me. That's it from me for today. Have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core you can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.